we do these renovations in a day and then the social workers come out and everybody bursts into tears because it's just a beautiful thing. And families who now can go in and sit on the floor and play with a child, this is a much better environment for the child, for the family, and for the social worker to have a successful meeting. I'm Jill Shaw here with Ross Wilson, and this is Deep Dives brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. In this pod, we bring together national experts for a roundtable discussion about key issues in our schools, diving deep into root causes and innovative solutions. In today's episode, we dig into how we can support our most vulnerable students. In Massachusetts, there are 9,000 students in the foster care system and 50,000 students engaged with the Department of Children and Families. These students face a unique set of challenges, and today we are joined by the leaders of two organizations at the forefront of helping these young people succeed. Former First Lady of Massachusetts, Lauren Baker, is the founder and CEO of The Wonder Fund, a nonprofit that supports the young people engaged with the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families. And Shahir Mustafa is the president and CEO of Hopewell, which is the Commonwealth's largest nonprofit provider of comprehensive foster care, along with wraparound support. Lauren and Shahir join us to discuss the challenges these students face and how schools and communities can best support their most vulnerable students. Lauren and Shahir, welcome. Thank you. It's good Do you to guys be here. know each other, by the way? Have you ever? Thank you. Yes, yes, we, yes. Do you like each other? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can say that I like Lauren. I, I can't speak for her, but we, uh, the first time that I met you was actually when your husband was launching kind of a reform effort with the department. And I remember you were in one of those initial meetings and conversations, and that was the very first time that I met you. And then our past. You were at crossed. DCF. I was at DCF. And at the Lauren, time, you were correct. then yeah. first lady. Yes. Yeah. I'd just become first lady and was trying to figure out how to best spend my time. Well, I actually, thats I'm curious about that. So as you became First Lady, did you sort of look at this landscape comprehensively and then decide, I want to have particular focus around children and families who are involved in DCF? And was that the genesis of Wonderfund? Or how did it all come about? And maybe also talk a little bit about what it is. Well, it came about because when my husband was elected governor, I was given this opportunity of an incredible platform to shed light on issues or organizations that were important to me. And for me, my passion is about helping kids. And kind of by accident, I found out about this tiny little nonprofit called the DCF Kids Fund, which was started by a social worker who was trying to figure out a way to take private donations into a public agency to buy holiday gifts for kids. Mm. And I found out about it because the governor's office was participating in a holiday gift drive. And I was like, wait, what is this? And then, you know, for me, I was like, "Ah, this is great. The woman who had founded it had recently retired, and they were kind of floundering, trying to figure out how to move forward. They had hired another social worker to come in and try to fill the shoes of the founder. And I thought what I was going to do was help raise awareness and, you know, raise them some money and help more kids and then move on to the next project. But once I got in there, I realized, like, there was so much potential to be a huge resource to DCF. And so we reimagined and rebuilt the thing. And You rebranded it. We rebranded it and relaunched it in 2017 as the Wonder Fund. 
And keeping the mission, we provide resources and opportunities to kids engaged, to every child engaged with DCF Mm -hmm. in emergency situations. And then we enrich their lives with all sorts of resources and opportunities that they can choose themselves. So we provide material assistance in emergency situations, like when a child has to be removed from an unsafe home, we'll make sure they get a new duffel bag filled with pajamas, socks, and underwear, and other necessities that gives them a little dignity and a little extra care in what must be just the most traumatic and frightening moment of their lives. That's so sweet. And then today we're going to talk about where that holiday gift drive has gone to, and so we'll talk a little bit about that at the end as well. Shahir, you run Hopewell. What is Hopewell, and how did you get involved? So Hopewell is a nonprofit organization, and I can tell you about what we do and how we do it, but I actually think it's important to start with why we do it, because that's really the guiding principle behind our work. And why we do the work that we do is because youth experiencing foster care are our nation's most marginalized group of young people. And as bad enough as that is, they come into contact with our system through no fault of their own. So that is just so fundamentally unjust that we we do not rest until we can move that system more towards equity. So I, I was reading some something about this where I think it's about 10% of, of children who are involved in DCF are in foster care. Correct. Is that, is that sound? Is that, yes. Okay. So can you just explain the difference between being involved in DCF and then being involved in foster care? Yeah, you just named it. So essentially, the federal government requires all states to have a child welfare system to protect kids. So in Massachusetts, it's the Department of Children and Families, and there are mandated reporting laws and all sorts of uh, systems in place to ensure that kids are not being abused or neglected. So a report can be filed, it gets investigated. If it is substantiated, then you are now in the system, so to speak, right? But as you mentioned, only about 10% will enter the formal foster care system. And the difference with that is that the state has now taken custody. The safety and neglect concerns are so severe, so concerning that the child's safety is at imminent risk. So a judge supports that and that decision is made and kids enter foster care. And what is Hopewell's role in Yeah, so so we do that diversionary work. So a family gets involved with DCF, a substantiated concern finding is determined, and our teams will go in and work with the family to prevent the kid from entering foster care and the family losing custody. That is the our largest growing body of work, mm-hmm. and I'm very excited about that work. Um, on top of that, we recruit, license, and train foster parents. So we have a couple hundred foster parents across the Commonwealth that provide a safe place for kids to grow and thrive in the event that they do need to be removed from their parents' care. So we do that as well. And then we are also working to close the academic opportunity gap. We support kids who are aging out of foster care because that is also a subset of youth experiencing foster care that really, really need our our support. And ultimately, we are engaged in systems healing and systems transformation work. And that is done at a policy advocacy level because we can provide our direct programs and that that meets an immediate need, but we're not addressing the systemic challenges if we stay solely focused in that area. So we we call it having our head in the clouds and our feet on the ground. So we do the day-to-day work simultaneously working to address the system inequities. So there's there's a part of this though is that's about maintaining the system and then there's a part of that is about preventing families and children from entering the system. 
the bulk of the budget is spent on the system and not on prevention. And it sounds like Hopewell then is raising money externally to also fund prevention. What is the conversation like across the country and in the state about tipping the scales there and spending more money on prevention? Is it even plausible? Do we know enough to know how to prevent these situations? And do you feel like that's a plausible Move and Joe, I'm just gonna. I'll jump in. I think we spend our, in Massachusetts 150 million a year on foster care and about seven million on preventative programs to prevent students from going in or children from going into foster care. Yeah, so I would answer that question in a couple different ways. There are state-funded systemic efforts to move towards prevention. And the Family First Prevention Services Act, which was passed by the feds a few years back in Massachusetts, is an effort to do that. So that is will shift the funding somewhat to, you know, it just the, the reality is it costs more money to house kids. So I think on, on mm. some level, the budget will always re- mm-hmm. represent that mm-hmm. imbalance. But we are starting to move money more towards prevention, which is a good thing. But one thing that our system does not do and that I, I think the state does not do particularly well is innovate. And in human services, in foster care in particular, innovation is really not something that occurs very often. It is not supported. Uh, it is not rewarded. Um, and I can get into all the reasons why I think that is the case. But we that's where, to me, the philanthropic sector can come in to bolster and invest in promising practices, which then can be brought to scale. Bureaucracy and risk are not really synonymous. And so it really takes outsiders to carry the risk. But it does seem like this this shift to more preventative care and programming has been working. I think just maybe two, three years ago, we had about 11,000 kids in foster care. Now we're about 9,000 kids. So it seems like it is on the right trend. Is that what you guys are seeing? I mean, the the numbers are correct. I don't know personally if it's because fewer kids are going into foster care or if, you know, I, I don't know how, how the, the department is looking at or counting kinship. Mm. You know, that's a, that's a form of foster care. Um, right. I, I mean, the numbers don't lie. There are, yeah. there are you know, yeah. a few thousand fewer kids in foster care now than there were a few years ago. Right. But 50,000 kids involved in DCF is still a very big number. It is a very a big very number. vulnerable, most vulnerable students. Yeah. Well, I, so I'm wondering, I mean, this is not just a responsibility of a few, but it's a responsibility of all, I would say, in how do we support families both who are involved in DCF and how are we supporting our children who are involved in foster care? What is your viewpoint of, like, not just your two organizations, but what is the role of community? What is the role of the state? What is the role of schools in making sure that we're supporting these families who are most in crisis? Big question. I mean, I think, you know, the state, what the state does do well is I think the scale and scope of our child protective system is more than adequate. I am not a proponent that it needs to be any bigger. In fact, I think we might, we could look at potentially scaling some of that back. And I do appreciate the efforts of, you know, Commissioner Spears and the previous administration on reducing the number of kids experiencing foster care. I think that's Mm. a good thing. Mm. Um, And moving more towards kinship care. Um, What is kinship care? So I'll just use myself as an example. I have two children. God forbid something happens to myself or my wife. I would hope that the department would place them with my brother in Tennessee. That would be a kinship placement. They would be in foster care, but they would be placed with a relative. And I think there's about 25% of 
children in foster care are placed in kinship care? I think it's higher. I think it actually might now be closer to 50%. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, um, the department so has the made difference. some significant efforts to move in that direction, mm. which is really, really good. And that, that yeah. trends with what is happening across the country. Got it. Yeah. So what's school like for the average student in foster care? Okay, so this is the part of the conversation that, in, in, in case you weren't depressed already, I think we just need to I'm acknowledge. I'm feeling very hopeful by, by you two. I, uh, yeah. I, I feel pretty good. Um, <laughs> good, good. But good. Well, um, maybe you'll change your opinion after this. Um, so kids experiencing foster care are really our most marginalized group of youth, as I mentioned, and the data really bears this out. So third grade reading proficiency, for example, kids experiencing foster care are two times less likely to meet the ELA MCAS standards than their non-foster peers. This compounds over time. So in eighth grade, they are three times less likely. In 10th grade, they are five times less likely. So let's just go like, so I, I believe these numbers in third grade proficiency is like 25% or 26% proficiency for kids in foster care. Right. Yeah. So, and so that's not good. And then it only compounds over time. And then what we see is the downstream effects of that. So one in five will drop out of high school. Only about half will uh, matriculate on time. And for post-secondary attainment, 3% will achieve a post-secondary degree, which is just unconscionable. And then, you know, to me, there is a direct correlation between rates of incarceration. So any male, so we talked about the difference between foster care and just child welfare involvement writ large. Any male who has any contact with child welfare, so they do not need to be in foster care, by the time they are 26 years old, 80% will be arrested, incarcerated on probation or parole. 80%. And can you just, so why? What is happening in their lives? What's their day-to-day -day that so many of them, their trajectory is in yeah, that Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's complex for sure. I mean, first of all, when kids are in foster care, I don't think we can underestimate the traumatic impact. Right. Now, I yeah. understand that, you know, kids, look, I worked at DCF. I was an area director for six years. People do horrible things to kids. We need a system where kids can be placed in safe homes. Mm. I believe that. That said, that is not a, a decision that does not carry consequences, mm. right? And so when kids are removed, they're often removed from their community. They're separated from what they know, their friends, their relationships, their school systems. And then it just compounds over time. And this is the impossible job of the department. So DCF social workers carry a caseload of, you know, number dozens of kids and I have children of my own, and we're foster parents. And we have uh, somebody who's placed with us. She's on an IEP. And I just think about all that we have to do to ensure that her needs are being met. And that's not because of any insidious, you know, people trying to avoid responsibility. It's just right. who advocates on their behalf? Right. Who is going to run through a wall on their behalf? And kids experiencing foster care, in general, do not have that privilege. And so what we see is the downstream effect. To me, that's really what it boils down to. We're talking about kids in foster care, and I mean, no one chooses to be involved with DCF, and so every child who enters our child welfare system has experienced multiple ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and we know from years of research that the more ACEs you have, the more likely you are to face lifelong consequences to your health and well-being. And it's there's yeah. a direct correlation. So that's where we're starting. And then we compound it by, you know, moving the child around or, I mean, no one sets out to right. continue to harm these kids, but it's, you know, it's the way the, so the system 
is functioning. Right. But both of you run organizations where, you know, you're trying to insert yourselves in that friction and, and sort of disperse it. And so maybe, Lauren, can you talk a little bit about that you're, you're touching students' lives, kids' lives from the maybe the second that they're removed from the home. And so it's a torturous experience. But can you talk about the other side of it and the things that Wonder Fund is trying to provide to sort of create a little bit of balance in this really caustic situation? Yeah. So our focus is on the child and giving that child back their childhood. And so we're starting from the point of they're already engaged with DCF and they've already endured all kinds of trauma. Yeah. So what can we do to mitigate the impact of that trauma? And we spend a lot of time studying that. And one of the key things that we see all the time is that if you can give a child a healthy relationship with an adult who cares about them, that's a huge mitigating factor. Mm. So we are encouraging the DCF social workers that we work with to choose, you know, to ask the the children that they work with, what do you like to do after school? What are your friends doing? What passions do you have? What interests do you have? And the Wonder Fund will pay to have that child take karate lessons or take driver's ed and get their driver's license so they can get a job or, you know, all those, anything a child wants or needs to do, we're going to do. And we hear stories about the joy and the agency and the uncovering of passions or natural abilities that these kids experience. Mm. And you've seen it in your own kids, you know, you never know what's going to resonate with a child, but, you know, they go to their first day of karate lessons and they come back and their eyes are this big and they're like, you know, I'm actually good at this. Yeah. We have a story about a little girl who was nine who was living with her dad and and he requested karate because she'd expressed interest and she'd been facing, you know, having trouble in school, facing bullying, uh, having a lot of trouble. And she said she thought she might like karate. She went, she did, and achieved her first, you know, striped belt. And her father wrote a note to the social worker that said he'd noticed incredible changes in his daughter. And he felt that the series of karate lessons had given his daughter so much more confidence and had helped her much more than the year of therapy that she'd had before then. So, you know, if we can give these children the opportunity to choose and then give them these experiences to build skills, make friends, join a community, you know, we're hoping that that will mitigate the impact of the trauma and allow these kids focus on other things, yeah. like their schoolwork. You Gives know? them new, new pathways. Yeah. Yeah, that's really yeah. beautiful. And then can you talk a little bit, Shahir, about the RISE part of your organization and why you created that? Because that, too, is disruptive. Absolutely, yeah. And I just really want to just double-click on something that you mentioned, Lauren, which to me, what I hear in that story is the power of identity. Yeah. And when young people, people, hold an identity, everything becomes possible once they believe in that possibility of that identity. So that's huge. And that actually segues 
to the RISE program and what we're trying to do. So at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is to increase third grade reading proficiency. So we all we don't need to get into why that's a key metric. I mean, they're literally building prisons based off of third grade reading levels. Um, it's right. that clear a predictor of future life outcomes. Yeah. So we selected that for obvious reasons. The other piece is that there's really no one in the country that is focused on third grade reading proficiency for kids experiencing foster care. It's hmm. in the ethos, in the educational gestalt, but not specific for kids in foster care. And that is a, they have unique characteristics and needs. So we did a research and design sprint where we did a landscape scan to see what was out there. Not surprisingly, nothing really for this population. So we essentially built our own model. And so it's a high impact tutoring model and it's home-based. And so that's a key distinction because kids in foster care bounce around a lot. And so if you have a school-based model, which almost all of these models are, our kids are typically ineligible for that, or it gets disrupted after three months because they move. So we are we also have paid professional tutors. We pay them, we train them in our curriculum, and they deliver the service and support in the home. We also create kind of a, a, there's a caregiver engagement component because we understand that the kid is within a home environment, within a system, right? And so we can't just do this intervention with kids. We need to engage the caregivers. So that involves an intact family, or if a kid's returning back to their bio family, we want to create a culture of reading in that home environment. Again, I just think about myself, what I grew up in and what I do with my own kids, what we do with our own kids is we really create a culture of reading and learning in our home and that you can't underestimate the, and again, it gets to that point of identity, right? So that the kid just, this is just what we do, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's social emotional elements, which, you know, obviously factors in the trauma of being in foster care. So we incorporate social and emotional learning as well. The last thing I'll say about it is that this was solely launched and made possible through the generosity of philanthropy. So our goal is to open source learning. We're learning as we go. We partnered with the Heller School at Brandeis to research and evaluate the model, figure out what's working, what's not, and then to spread this and to scale it because we believe it should be an entitlement for any kid experiencing foster care so that we can disrupt these horrible long-term outcomes. So we're not there yet. It's only about two years old. It's a work in progress, but it's that type of innovation that I think we so desperately need. Philanthropy plays a key role in making that possible. And I think that's it's it's incredible. And I think to build that within your organization, and it it can transcend the school and you know wherever the child goes, it's there for the child and the family. I think is amazing. And there's a lot of dignity to this, right? Like if you are in the in foster care, you automatically get this support, right? And that's the way it should be. The system should be that you automatically get these additional supports if you are in the care of a foster home. Just on the theme of dignity. Lauren, you've done a significant amount of work around reuniting families, right? So when a child may be separated from their caregiver through DCF custody, you've and, and we've done this with you, how do you create space for families to reunite with dignity? Thank you. And thanks to the Shaw Family Foundation, which made this work possible. When a family is engaged with DCF, if they're, you know... Uh, Oftentimes, the family has supervised visits where a social worker will be present while the parent or the caregiver interacts with the child. There's a lot of reasons for that. And, you know, what we noticed going in and out of DCF offices is that a DCF office is office space meant for adults. Mm. um, And it is outfitted for adults. And yet, There are these interactions, these supervised visits that need to take place. 
we just noticed that it's really stressful. If you're a parent and your child has been taken from you for whatever reason, and you have to come to a supervised visit inside a DCF office, that's incredibly stressful. Mm-hmm. And then to be sitting at, you know, in an office at a conference table with your five-year-old trying to act natural and be a good parent. It's very difficult. And so we thought if we could take the stress level down for everybody involved, wouldn't that help create a better chance at a better outcome? Yeah. So working with you guys, we have undertaken to renovate the family visiting rooms in DCF offices around the Commonwealth to create trauma-informed comfortable, welcoming, family and child-oriented spaces. And the impact of just making simple design choices, taking away harsh lighting and putting a lamp, you know, taking away a conference table and putting in a rocker and a bookshelf full of children's books, like those changes have an absolute immediate positive impact. And you've seen it yourself. When we do these renovations in a day and then the social workers come out and everybody bursts into tears because it's just a beautiful thing. And families who now can go in and sit on the floor and play with a child, this is a much better environment for the child, for the family, and for the social worker to have a successful meeting. Yeah, but there are lessons here for so many institutions, right? Like that, because you can spend money any variety of ways. And and before it was being spent in, in a way that created cold rooms with gray walls and sharp edges and lots of wood and, you know, nothing that was inviting and said, okay, take a deep breath, you're safe here, you can play here, you can have a conversation here, you can hug your child here. That is also transferable to lots of other situations where kids and adults are present and that this notion that thinking about our environment and really furnishing it and painting it it sounds so foofy but it's so important to how someone feels you know the colors that they're seeing and the vibrations that they're feeling as they walk into a space once you think about the impact of your physical space on your mood and your feeling and your stress level, you can't unsee that, right? right? And so, um, and, and, and the changes, and to make changes that lower the stress level is so simple. You just have to think about it. And, you know, in the case of, you know, office space, like, you know, it was like, well, we got a hundred employees, so we need a hundred black chairs and a hundred black desks. Right. Like, awesome. Yeah. You know, it's cheaper to buy in bulk and whatever. But instead of choosing the black wire chair, if you had chosen something in a more natural tone, maybe with a padded seat, so yeah. you know that someone could actually sit in. Yeah. You know, yeah. it just—it's so easy. It doesn't cost any money. It doesn't have to cost any more money. Right. Right. It's just being thoughtful. You know, about choose it. a different color for the wall. Yeah. You know, it's. It's awesome. And it, and the impact is immediate. I'm not big into design, but I think it's pretty cool too. But I think this is about expectations on, on, on all fronts. Like we've talked a lot about, and when we talk about education, 
people are like, why do you, you know, we, we are um, obsessive about talking about expectations for Boston public schools, for example, right? We mm. have very high expectations for the school system. And we don't accept that because your child goes to an urban school district that you should not be receiving the absolute world-class education that children deserve. They should have absolutely beautiful food, absolutely beautiful facilities. That's just, it should be the expectation. It should be the expectation that our families who are engaged with DCF receive the, have the utmost dignity and respect and care and that we show them that by the facilities that they are reuniting in. And it should be the expectation that our children in foster care are getting the utmost care, but also the expectation that they're not going to fail and they're not going to be in the prison system. Mm. You know, it, we, should, we have to change the expectation here because we cannot accept this outcome for our young people. But Shahir, with that, in, in, with Hopewell, like how, how can we help? Yeah, so... Uh... First of all, I just want to appreciate and acknowledge this platform because to me that this is one way that you're helping and our listeners can help is by becoming more well-informed. As somebody who's very steeped in this work, it's my entire professional career. I've been a therapist and working in child welfare for 25 years. I know this stuff backwards and forwards, and it's easy to take for granted that the general public does as well. Mm. They don't. Mm-mm. I think there are all sorts of misconceptions around foster care and child welfare. And so I think it starts with becoming more educated and informed. And the story writes itself. Once you become more informed, how can you not feel compassion and empathy for kids experiencing foster care and families involved in child welfare? So that is the first piece. I think we need to become more educated because a lot of kids experiencing foster care, there's a tremendous shame associated with that experience. So we have affinity groups for everything. There's very few affinity groups for people who have lived experience in foster care mm. because they, there's this just deep, deep shame associated with that. So I think we need to kind of change that narrative first and foremost. And then just, you know, more concretely, obviously, you can go to our website, www.hopewellinc.org. You can contribute philanthropically. If anybody is interested in learning more about becoming a foster parent, we have a huge shortage of foster parents. We didn't really touch on that much today, but this is a national trend. It's a trend we'll here talk in Massachusetts. talk about that. Why is that? Wow, that would be its own podcast, I would say. But I think in a nutshell, my hypothesis is that our philosophy on opening our home and charitable contributions and supporting community has shifted and changed generationally. Hmm. I think opening your home, that is a huge commitment and not something that should be thought about lightly. And I think there's the majority of foster parents are over the age of 50. I think there's just, there's a different demographic that is expressing interest in this and it's not as many people. So I think that's just some fundamental generational shifts are contributing to that. It's much more nuanced and layered than that, but that's a piece of it. How long, if you're a foster family, how long is a child in your care? Yeah, I wish I could give you a simple answer. There's really no simple answer. So some kids can be in care for a few days. That's not common. I would say most are in care for at least a few months, if not a year or two, but that doesn't mean that their placement with you is the ultimate placement. So it could be, let's say they want to do a kinship placement, but that relative, that uncle's got a bad quarry. They need to figure some of those pieces out, or maybe they just need to get the home ready so the kid can go into an interim placement for a few days until they're able to transition to something a little bit more permanent. So it could be a placement like that, but there are many who foster to adopt. You know, it it really runs the gamut in terms of time. Yeah. And there's all different entry points into this as a foster parent? 
we recently became foster parents. We were licensed back in May. And so we just given the way our life is organized, my wife and I both run nonprofit organizations. We care for her mother-in-law. We have two kids of our own. So we kind of knew short-term placements were probably going to be a better fit for us. But then, right. I, you know, not surprisingly, because there's <laughs> so few placements, you know, we get approached about, well, what, what do you think about this situation, which is a little bit longer? I mean, that's just typically what will yeah. happen. But you can kind of set up front what works for you and your family. And, you know, the department will find placements to match that as best they can. And you said that you also train families to be foster families. And what sorts of things do you touch on? Oh, boy. Everything. So trauma, huge. Everything from how to ensure kids are safe on social media, first aid, the legal process involved with kids in foster care. MAP training runs kind of, that's what they call it, MAP training. It's a 10-week course that Hmm. covers an entire gamut of topic areas. Thank you for becoming a foster parent. Yeah. That's really amazing. Yeah. I mean, we can't celebrate foster families enough. And the Wonder Fund Mm -hmm. recognizes that their importance. And so a DCF foster family has the ability to have a Wonder Fund access card, which is like a AAA card. It's our way of supporting foster families. And it gets Massachusetts foster families discounted or free admission to lots and lots of family-friendly activities like museums and theater and parks and all of that kind of thing. Um, I get your emails. I didn't realize that it had those benefits, so I'm going to go back ah. and check. you got to go on our website Absolutely. and see who are – we have amazing partners like the Museum of Science and the Children's Museum and theaters all over the place. You know, it's, it's expensive so nice. to take yeah. your child yes. to mm-hmm. anywhere, you know, yes. so – Anything we can do to support foster families and make it easier for them to give their children, their bio and foster children, wonderful experiences and the opportunity to bond, that's, you know, that's something we want to try to do. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Well, I feel like we should cue the holiday music for a second, but they, because I want to talk about where this will play in November, and I want to talk about one of the wonderful things that any listener can easily support that you do, Lauren, and that the Wonder Fund does. We So Midori and I, are, my daughter and I, have been participating in this annually, your holiday gift drive. And we actually have this wonderful time. We actually shop for the children ourselves and then send the presents. And we just, it's you know, it's just such a, like, beautiful time to think about somebody else. And so can you talk a little bit about how anyone who's listening can participate in the Wonder Fund's gift drive? Yeah, thank you. The Wonder Fun Holiday Gift Drive started about 25 years ago, maybe even longer now. And the goal is to ensure that every one of the 50,000 kids engaged with the Department of Children and Families gets a holiday gift meant just for them. We have thousands of donors, and you can participate by going to our website, which is www.wonderfundma.org, and you can choose to sponsor the specific wish list of a specific child. It's usually like three gifts. We hope you'll go on and choose hundreds of wish lists, or you can just, you can create your own loose toy drive and 
send toys in. We have many ways you can participate. So go to wonderfundma.org and sign up and make a child's holiday wishes come true. Yeah, and you really should. So I'm on the Wonderfund site right now. And so I just click on register now. You could honestly host a shopping party at your house, which I think is great. You can do do the the whole thing. You can do it all online too. If you want, we have Amazon wish lists. Yeah. And you can, you don't even have to leave the comfort of your home. You can shop online and have the, the gifts delivered where they need to go. So it's a really beautiful thing. And, you know, as you're all listening, it would be amazing to have everyone spend 10 or 15 minutes shopping for someone. Please um, sign up. Yeah, it'd be, be great. Wonderful. Yeah. You know, this, this is one of those topics where I, I agree that when we talk about DCF, we talk about foster care, there's a lot of misunderstandings about the system. From talking with you both, I'm encouraged by the work that your organizations do for, for the children and families involved in DCF and involved in foster care. And I think, you know, for all of us, we should all lean into this. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really nice to talk to both of you. Thanks for having us. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our conversation with Lauren Baker and Shahir Mustafa. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep Dives. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. And if you're interested in what's happening in Boston Public Schools, subscribe to our other podcast, Last Night at School Committee, where we recap every Boston School Committee meeting. Have a great day.